Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Hunter Cates. On today's show, we're reviewing the film that won Best Motion Picture at the 88th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony, Tom McCarthy's Spotlight. Then in special features, we will discuss ensemble films during Smells Like Team Spirit, What Are the Greats, and Why Don't We See More of Them? And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Well, since we last spoke, Midnight Warriors... Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice plummeted in its second weekend. It was about 69% drop from its first weekend, which would make it within the top five biggest drops from first to second weekend. The Warner Brothers suits were not at all anticipating this film doing so poorly, both with critics and at the box office. And as a consequence, they're kind of rearranging their short-term and long-term schedules. So before we get into some of the things they're doing to change up, Chris, let's talk a little bit about this. How did Warner Brothers not see this happening? Honestly, my question is, how did they not try to do any sort of course correction after Man of Steel? Um, because Man of Steel was, it was not a flop, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a Superman movie performance. Well, and exactly. And the second weekend, much like this, it was a steep drop. It wasn't mm-hmm. this steep, but it was a steep drop, which would seem, I think what they saw is they thought, oh, well, clearly Superman just doesn't have a lot of box office weight. Let's throw Batman in it. But mm-hmm. it the exact mm-hmm. same movie, only only heightened. Yeah. And I, I don't know, man. I it It's all seemed like a very bizarre, like, sort of Willy Wonka world over there for like a very dark Willy Wonka world. Yes, over very, there yes, yeah. Willy Wonka uh, kills off all the Oompa Loompas in the <laughs> Warner Brothers, the new Warner Brothers version of it. But some of the things they are changing is the upcoming Suicide Squad, which is mm-hmm. set to be released in August. They are reshooting, creating some more comic scenes because apparently some in, adding some levity. Yeah. To, excuse me. By comic, I mean comedy. Yeah. yeah, some, yeah. Adding some laughs. So my question to that is you made a, superhero movie with will smith and you didn't put jokes in it uh, and i and and then, i mean you you do at least get will smith going woo <laughs> yeah oh hell no i'm sure that yeah. take a shot every time he says oh hell no but i mean just the, apparently they, they have a no jokes policy and that's evidenced here yeah here's here's the thing that i find fascinating though is like suicide squad is the one where they decide oh maybe maybe we should add some jokes it's it's a like sort of anti-hero vigilante the bad guys become the you know like it seems like such the weird place to be like oh we're gonna we're gonna lighten it up now well see i actually disagree because i think that that's it's almost a and we'll talk about this in a second but it's almost a deadpool scenario wherever it's kind of undermining the genre that maybe I'm surprised that that never occurred to him until now, you know mm. what I mean? To start putting the levity into it. I, I, I could kind of see that, but it just seemed like they're with their mode of thought. It seems like this would be the one that they're like, yeah, we're going to go really dark because it's all bad guys. It's all bad guys. Well, to put this, this plummeting in perspective, Batman v Superman will liably not make a billion dollars at the global box office, which is astounding. And even more astounding, it will probably make at the domestic box office less than Deadpool. So an obscure, even though that's a the Deadpool movie, that's kind of a phenomenon, an obscure X-Men character will make more than Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, their very first on-screen pairing. That's mm-hmm. depressing. As a DC guy, that's depressing. It, it is depressing. It's not, I mean, after seeing that movie, though, it's it it's understandable. It's totally understandable. You know, like it's uh, and and to be like for for those who like I I only like minorly keep up with box office earnings and that sort of thing, because honestly, that's not the thing that I'm most concerned with. But whenever you're tracking something like a superhero movie, that's I mean, that is what these these films are made to do. Uh, A billion dollars was their like uh, their sort of goalpost in this. And so anything under making a billion dollars globally from my understanding is a failure for sure this. and i wouldn't even say goalpost i would say it was a floor you know what i mean that was yeah, what, that was yeah. what they expected at the, at the very least as one studio head who was quoted in a hollywood report article who and we'll we'll put this in the show notes but he said you know jurassic world made 1.6 billion worldwide and you're telling me that there's not enough enthusiasm for batman and superman on screen for the very first time in history well the, that's I, not but that gonna... that enthusiasm turned out on the first weekend right and then between, you know, I think it's a part in part between like reactions being like, yeah, I mean, it was even like I haven't really read any opinions from people who were just like gung ho for this. Um, so between like it being like even the people who like it are sort of 
in, apologizing almost a, for a little bit. Um, but then on the other end, like, I don't think anyone is revisiting this film. Like mm-hmm. that is, that's a thing that makes the big box office earnings like over a long span of time is, uh, people go back and see star Wars again and again, Avengers again and again. You, you're not going to get that out of this movie. Right. Well, a friend of the show, Adam Chitwood, wrote an article on Clutter.com about how Warner Brothers is kind of changing their approach. And it was also based on a Hollywood, the Hollywood Reporter article mm-hmm. I mentioned. What do you think? Have you read about what they're planning on doing, Warner Brothers? I mean, my understanding is that they are – and we'll, we'll link to this article in the show notes. Um, my understanding is that they're basically kind of tightening their belts down here. They are – saying, okay, these are the things that we think will print money and we're not going to take as many chances now. Um, we might, you know, move some things where, uh, production goes out of house and we distribute some of those sorts of sorts of things where they're just not taking as many risks, which also means that, I mean, had this happened, I would, I would be terrified if this had happened, what, two, three years ago. And, Mad Max was, you know, on the upcoming, mm-hmm. what, I don't know if we would have gotten a movie like you that. You wouldn't, you, there's no way. And what's, what's funny about that is even studios, even rival studios, they say Warner Brothers is a legacy studio. They've built their name being a filmmaker centric studio, and they're probably not going to be able to really do that except for the Clint Eastwoods and the Nolans and even director Ben Affleck. Yeah. But otherwise, those, those three are mentioned in, mm-hmm. in the article as they, they will still, you know, make movies for them because those guys, I mean, Clint Eastwood is a guy who famously comes in, um, under schedule, under budget, and he makes, he doesn't blow up the box office most of the time, but he, you know, He's a reliable hand, yeah. Yeah. Um, Nolan, Nolan's one that I think is interesting because he, I'm, I'm still on the Nolan train, even if I didn't necessarily love uh, Interstellar, but he's also a filmmaker that I think is sort of on that rocky ground where I, I'm afraid that he's going to have one like major false move. He might pull an M. And M. Night Shyamalan. And then, well, M. Night Shyamalan made a few before. Well, several was, false moves. But. Yeah. But uh, he might make, you know, a false move that loses a lot of money, and then he's in a position where no one wants to fund him again, which I, I think would be um, would be terrible, because he's one of the few people who's constantly making very original properties, you know, not based on anything. Yeah, and, but, he's, and, he's, and he's one of the few who can actually get away with it. Um, as a, as an, not just an admirer of DC, but as an admirer of Warner Brothers, it's been well over 40 years since 1969 that they've owned this, this brand. Controversial opinion. Should they just sell it? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think they are innovating with it like Disney has with Marvel Studios. So maybe, um, who's, who's going to buy it? What are they going to do with it? Well, um, I mean, the obvious answer, and, and when I say this, I will say they will be completely separate entities, but the obvious answer would be Disney, <laughs> since Disney more and more is becoming just a collection of intellectual properties established mm-hmm. somewhere else that they're reviving. So, And then we build it all to a Justice League versus Avengers movie. Well, yeah, exactly. It goes back to what we've been talking about ever since the beginning, where the final film, the final movie ever made is all characters at once in and, one thing. And then, and then you have a, like... They they then the survivors fight the cartoons from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes, and then some Lego characters thrown in. <laughs> some some Lego characters in Harry Potter. Just one giant franchise. It'll be perfect. And then mm-hmm. after everyone's died, the Ghostbusters can come in and <laughs> and clean house. Well, folks, that's Chris and Mai's opinion on that what's... That is an apocalypse. Yes, is what that, that is. is. Yes, an X-Men apocalypse, perhaps. Sorry, mm. couldn't help myself. Well, folks, that's what Chris and I think about what's going on with Warner Brothers. We want to know what you think. Do you think Warner Brothers should sell the DC property? And if not, what do you think they should do to revive it? Let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Now stay tuned for our review of last year's Best Picture winner, Spotlight. I know there's things you cannot tell me. But I also know there's a story here, and I think everybody will hear about it. Do you think your paper has the resources to take that on? I do. Do you? The Boston priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. The church found out about it and did nothing. We haven't committed any long-term investigative resources to the case. No, we haven't. And that's the kind of thing your team would do. Spotlight. Guys, listen. Everybody's going to be interested in this. Obviously, the church will fight us very hard. Trying to get some background information. I don't want you recording this in any way, shape, or form. Nothing. We understand you've settled several cases against the church. I can't discuss that. There aren't any records of any of these settlements. Nope. 
When you're a poor kid from a poor family, and when a priest pays attention to you, it's a big deal. How do you say no to God? Spotlight. This is the tip line. You think he's got something? I want to keep digging. We need to focus on the institution. Show me that it came from the top down. 2015 was quite the year for writer-director Tom McCarthy. In the month of March, he gave us the essentially straight-to-Netflix Adam Sandler comedy, The Cobbler. This dumpster fire garnered a whopping 9% approval rating from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and two Razzie nominations for its star. Fast forward to the fall, and McCarthy was back, this time with a film that actually received a proper theatrical release. Spotlight was adored by critics, and as it turned out, Academy voters liked the movie as well. It received five Oscar nominations and took home two golden statuettes on the big night for Best Original Screenplay and Best Motion Picture of the Year. Since we missed the opportunity to review Spotlight last fall, and frankly, there's nothing new in theaters that we're dying to discuss, we've decided to catch up on the Best Picture winner now that it's available to rent and buy and stream and such. Spotlight stars Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams, Brian Darcy James, and Michael Keaton as a team of real-life Boston Globe reporters who exposed a decades-old cover-up of child molestation within the local Catholic Church. Naturally, this film explores some pretty sensitive territory, which requires a level of nuance Hollywood isn't always known for. So Hunter, I'm curious, how do you feel McCarthy and his ensemble cast handled the subject matter? And beyond that, having now caught up with Spotlight, where do you think this film ranks among the other seven Best Picture nominees of 2015? Well, Chris, the short answer to your question is yes, I thought it was a really, really great movie, and I liked it as much as any of the Best Picture nominees, and I liked it more than its number one competitor, The Revenant. I thought it was better certainly, than The Revenant. Yeah, certainly. And it was, I liked it about as much as Mad Max and The Big Short, which I also recently caught up. So I, I am 100% okay with this being uh, the Best Picture winner. The, um, the the question of is it a good Best Picture winner is almost bigger than we can discuss here because kind of like what makes a Best Picture? Mm-hmm. But as far it's not it doesn't bother me that it won because like I said I thought it was a great movie. It's it's an interesting movie that you don't see a whole lot these days because it kind of reminded me of television drama and I'll mm-hmm. tell you why is television drama is kind of broken up into two categories. There's the procedural drama and then there's the character driven drama. The procedure would be like your NCISs and your Law and Orders, and then your character dramas would be like Mad Men and Sopranos. This actually reminded me of a procedural. I think mm-hmm. that this really was a procedural. Is you didn't really take a deep dive on all these characters. You looked at them. I'm not going to say superficially, but you looked at them, kind of got an idea of their home life, their their romantic lives, etc. But you didn't just. It wasn't character drama at all. It was 100. percent These are reporters, and this is what reporters do. And I loved that. Mm-hmm. Well, even when you go home with these. Rep- reporters per se like you're not getting a a broad like oh here here they are with the kids at the dinner table or any of that it's it's more it's about their work you know it's it's still connected to that process i i totally agree i mean in in my notes i had um a a note about like it reminded me of the wire in the way that that show sort of it's and and honestly it I really began to feel it after seeing it the first time, you know, like as it sort of sunk in and it has this quality where it's like, it's not, you know, it looks, it looks good, but it's not like visually stunning that, that blows you away. The, the acting is really good, really competent, but it's not like you don't have a Don Draper or a Roger Sterling. Um, even though you do have a John Slattery, even though you do have John Slattery in this who, you know, you're just like, Oh yeah. Like the, the characters are just real solid. Um, and so I was actually amazed when doing research for the episode to realize, Oh, Tom McCarthy, the reason that I recognize Tom McCarthy, he was in the wire. He was in, he was in the, I think it was the last season, the, the, uh, newsroom season. Mm-hmm. And he's the, I guess, spoilers for season five of the wire. He's the reporter who's, um, you know, falsifying all the stories to over embellish them. And see, that's really interesting because he is one of those character actors. He's one of those, Hey, I know that guy mm-hmm. character actors. Cause I saw him in interviews and I thought, where do I know that guy from something? So yeah, to your point, this is truly a, this is a true ensemble. And we'll talk about this more in special features, but in many ways, this film almost made me reassess what is an ensemble because this isn't just a collection of stars per se. There is no lead in this yeah. movie. Yeah. Even the even the person who's say fifth build, I would say is could just as is just as much a propellant mm-hmm. of what's of what's happening in the story. Like the Lee of Shriver character, he's not in it as much he's, as the others, but he's the one propelling the action. He's in a huge piece. Like without that character, you don't get you don't get the arc of their like ambition in this uh, approach to 
um, trying to uncover the truth of, of this story. He's, he's the one who really sets it in motion. Well, even, even from like the beginning, the meeting, he kind of pitches it as like, Oh, Hey, what's the deal with. And for those, for those who haven't seen it, he comes in, Leif Shriver comes in as the new editor. Um, he's sort of the outside guy. You know, this is a, it's the Boston globe. It's, you know, a community, you know, they, they approach it as they feel like it's a community paper and he's sort of the outsider. Um, he's, he's not from Boston. He's a Jew. He's, um, he's a middle-aged single man or approaching middle-aged single man. So he's sort of, he's sort of the outsider. And, and he, with that outsider perspective says, what, what's going on here with, with this trial that's going on right now? Maybe we should look a little deeper into it. Yeah. As, as he put it is he believes that a local paper should be essential to its readers. Mm -hmm. And so as a person like myself, who still reads a physical paper, I like a physical paper. I appreciated the, it, it, this is going to be the wrong word, but the romanticism almost, the justification is a better word. This film justifies mm-hmm. the, the newspaper, and it, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and there's also, like, the the main story is certainly this investigative journalism looking into this this cover-up um, throughout the Catholic Church in, in Boston and how far up it goes. But there's also this this nice little undertone of the death of print that they, they don't really address, you know, too, too much, but... Um, throughout you kind of, you kind of have this when, when you say romanticizing, like it, it's, it almost feels like this sort of, um, this statement of this is the type of thing that as, as print is dying, this sort of investigative journalism is something that we are prone to lose. Um, which I, I think is a very strong, but subtle statement. You know, they're not, they're not beating you over the face with it, but it's definitely there throughout, um, this entire film in, you know, in things like there's, there's a great shot of the, the parking lot. You see the Boston globe on the side of the building parking lot and right above it it's, and this is said in what? 2001. Yeah. Um, early. Yeah. Uh, there, there's this great shot of this AOL billboard right above the parking lot that just, it's, it's this great comment on like, Oh, this is print print publications are going the way of America online. Well, and also not to, not to rip on Mad Men, but if I had one issue with Mad Men, it's that whenever they did do those kind of throwback or those references to the past, it would almost be with a sneer mm-hmm. and your AOL reference did, was not a sneer. It's just, there's an AOL billboard. You know what I mean? It's the yeah. And, and it's, it's not really drawing your attention to it. It's, it's just the right amount of, of subtlety that you get it, but it's, it's, it's not like, Hey, look, here it is right here. Like, and and if you don't get it, it doesn't, it doesn't affect anything. It feels like it belongs in the place it is as well. Now you pointed out that the, that the visual style isn't really that loud. I would actually go so far as to say I I wasn't impressed by it, but at the same time, I I was so impressed by the acting. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that. Who are some of your standouts here? It, you know, it, it kind of moves around. I want to come back to visual style in, in a moment, but it, it moves around for me throughout the movie. Like there was a, so watching it the second time, um, there's, there was a lot that I caught just in the way things are sort of set up. Um, because the, the first time through, you're trying to figure out like who's, who's on what side. And there are no, there really are no villains per se. There's no, you know, there's, we have lawyers that we're dealing with. And at one point you think like, Oh, well, Billy Crudup is going to be a bad dude. And there's, there's, there's levels with, with all of these characters. But uh, one of the things the second time around that I was trying to track is, okay, who's hamming it up the most. And Keaton does it a little bit whenever like um, he, he gets a little bit in his Boston accent, but it's never too much. Uh, Ruffalo does it. I would say he's probably the one that the most like gets a little big and he has that one scene where he freaks out and he, you know, I, I, I can't remember exactly what it is that he's saying, but he's like, why aren't we doing, we got to go, you know, he's basically, we got to go big. It's that big speech. Well, and guess who's got his, got the Oscar nom, you know what I mean? So, and that was the the exact scene they played whenever they were talking about supporting actors. Yeah, of course it was. We got law. This is it. No, this is law covering for one priest. There's another 90 out there. Yeah, and we'll, we'll print that story when we get it, but we, we got to go with this now. No, I'm not going to rush the story, Mike. But we don't have a choice, Robbie. If we don't rush to print, somebody else is going to find these letters no. and butcher the story. Joe Quimby from the Herald was at the freaking courthouse. Mike. What? Why, why are we hesitating? Barron told us to get law. This is law. Barron told us to get the system. We need the full scope. That's the only thing that will put an end to this. Then let's take it up to Ben. Let him decide. We'll take it to Ben when I say it's time. It's time, Robbie. It's time. 
They knew, and they let it happen to kids. Okay? It could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been any of us. We got to nail these scumbags. We got to show people that nobody can get away with this. Not a priest or a cardinal or a freaking pope. They're all really good. John Slattery's really good. Honestly, Leif Shriver might be my favorite in this. Um, he He's only a character who kind of shows up periodically and pushes... Uh, pushes the story forward, but he's very good in that, that character. He's sort of a, um, he's a, he's got a soft touch to him and uh, he just seems like a real sort of stand up dude. I, I don't know. It, it might be Keaton as well though, because like when the teeth come out on him, um, there's, there's at, at one point he, he approaches an old friend of his uh, who's a lawyer. And uh, at one point they're on, a golf course, you know, kind of basically Michael Keaton's character, Robbie has, um, uh, approached him to say, Hey, let's go golfing. But really he's trying to mine some information out of him. And it gets to a point where it kind of comes to a head in, um, collision where his buddy realizes what's going on. And he's like, Oh, this is, this is the Robbie that I've heard about for years. You know, the investigative journalist who will stop at nothing to get the story that he wants and the information he wants. Um, and there's, there's just the right amount of that. You know, he never, he never gets into like full blown, like freaking out bulldog stage or whatever. It's just, it's, there's so much subtlety to the way that they handle these things, even whenever things escalate like that. It's, it's all within a restrained world where it's like the, all the, I guess all these characters have, um, you know, layers to them. And I, I really love that. Yeah. The key word here with spotlight is, is subtle because you mentioned Michael Keaton. I mean, Michael Keaton, I love the guy, but he does tend to ham, but not so much here. Mm-hmm. And then Mark, Ruffalo, he manages to get in hamming, but you know, at the same time, he got his Oscar nom. So you know, what do well, I know? Well, and he's not—he's not a hundred percent hammy, though. That's the thing is, I, I uh, you know, I, I was actually making sort of stars along the way of like, okay, how much is how much is each character kind of going up? I, I would say Rachel McAdams never really mm. gets that that point. Uh, Brian Darcy James never really does it does it either. I mean, they're those they are the two that are kind of ebbing and flowing. Uh, Stanley Tucci as well. Um, and Stanley Tucci is one that's known to chew the scenery from time to time. He's pretty restrained. Well, too. and exactly. And it's one of those things. This, now that I think about it, this reminds me of a David Mamet book called The Truth and Heresy for the Actor. And in it, David Mamet basically goes on a rant against the method and in, in mm-hmm. modern acting styles. Oh, you don't say. You don't say. But anyway, what he argues is that. The writer, what the writer put there is what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Learn your lines, be true to the lines, be true to what's going on. Don't worry about what your character had for lunch, mm-hmm. per se, and don't shout your lines or don't add emotion to your lines that isn't there on the page. And I don't know if anyone in this movie read that book, but it felt like they were applying those principles. And actually, William H. Macy is a teacher. I cannot remember the name of the the, the style, this mammoth style, but it's it's something that David Mamet and William H. Macy are practitioners of and, and teachers of. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, it was really evidenced in this picture where even someone like John Slattery, who I was fully expecting to always see as Roger Sterling, mm-hmm. no matter what, mm-hmm. he wasn't Roger Sterling in this. That no. really impressed me. And he, he plays it very, like... He he has a deadpan like Roger Sterling does, but there's no wink to it. There's no like he he seems like, you know, the sort of the boss that you would really want at, yeah. a, at a newspaper. I was disappointed, though, that they didn't have the scene wherever he went undercover as an altar boy to try and <laughs> to try and set up a priest in a molestation case. That would have really taken this movie over the top to greatest of all time territory. If they that's, had some real, that's some real law and order shit. <laughs> <laughs> that scene definitely should have been in. Okay, you said Law and Order. Let's uh, let's let's play what ifs. So this probably won't get a sequel per se, but what if there was a spotlight style TV show or a spotlight style movie series, something like that? I think you could run with a season of it. I mean, like The Wire. I think that's it, you could have a season focus. I don't think you could make a a entire series, or it would have to be a limited run of some kind. Um, I think I think that's what's beautiful about. Um, about something like the wire. I think that's what like the approach of this um, I was actually, as, as it goes on, I was kind of thinking about, uh, about it in that, in that context. Like if it, if it was a season, how would you approach that differently? And um, the answer being like, there's several times where they sort of go into montage of knocking on doors and taking notes and that sort of thing. And those would be, those would be episode arcs um, where the information is slower coming. Like the, uh, the moment where, Rachel McAdams goes and knocks on the door, uh, finds the priest 
who uh, admits just straight out admits to molesting children um, in a very like weird, uh, dumbfounding way almost. I mean, it's, it's childlike. It's is so, it's so it matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that, that seems like the sort of moment that you would run into in about like the seventh episode, seventh or eighth episode of, um, of, of this season. Um, and it would just sort of break things open to a whole nother level of like, Oh my gosh, we've got a guy who's admitting it. Um, so I think it would function that way. I don't, I don't know about like a full series would be doing a disservice to the content even. Um, you, you know what I mean? Because then yeah, you're I, trying I, to stretch I, it. I see where you're coming from. I disagree. I do. Th- I think that if you were to do a wire style series or uh, once again, a prestigious style show, it's five to 10 episodes and season one is this scandal and season two is that scandal. Do it mm-hmm. something like that. Five seasons. I think, it'd, I, I think that, I think it could work. Well, no, I, I think that could work. Like, Oh, so, so you're saying spotlight in general as, as the kind of a template. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, no, and like I, I said, each season would be a different in, in, investigation. Okay. Yes. That I would, that I agree with that. I would watch. That would be very interesting. Fantastic. Okay. So you want to defend the style of the film? Yeah. I think just like the, just like the acting, just like everything, like initially, no, like it's not, it's not the type of movie that, um, at first glance, you're like, oh, this is gorgeous. But, uh, particularly watching it again, um, I did really appreciate the subtlety to the visuals of this because it's, uh, it is, uh, very, it's very lush, but it doesn't get in the way. You know, you have these establishing shots where you see maybe Boston from a, from a hilltop or, um, your, uh, there's the ballpark scene that, that establishing that all looks, you know, very nice. But, uh, then in like in the office, it's sort of muted and cool, but it doesn't feel ugly. You know, it doesn't feel just like gross and like they're in a basement you know, mm-hmm. where, where they are, in fact, you know, working, it, it still feels bright and optimistic. And so I think while it's not, it's not something visually gorgeous, like Mad Max, it serves the story very well. And it's, you know, it, it has that light touch that, um, that is very, I don't know, I, this, this second time around, I felt really went hand in hand with everything else going on in this film. Yeah, it, it doesn't at, at once again, it's all about the acting, all about the, all about the words on the page. It's, it's a play in that regard. A part of me would have liked to have seen them be a little bit more creative in doing single shot setups and mm. maybe a Kurosawa or even a Spielberg kind more, of style. More blocking. Exactly. And, yeah. Mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. a, you have a three minute long scene that you don't know is a single shot, that kind of thing. Mm. I would have appreciated that a little bit more. There's, and there's a, there's a few moments where you have a little bit of like, uh, particularly with like note taking sort of like moving around a little bit, or there's that when they get the phone call from the, I believe the doctor and there's this really slow pullback, like you start basically up on the phone and you can just see maybe Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, and then you can see it pulls back and you can see Mark Ruffalo and then it pulls back and you can can see Brian Darcy James. And then it just keeps moving further and further away from them as this information is revealed that like, Oh, this I, I think it's a moment where they get the 90 priests number and it's like, this could be way bigger than we ever mm-hmm. possibly imagined. Um, and I, so I think there is some, I mean, that's not really blocking. They're staying in the same spot, but um, we are kind of moving away as it becomes more and more obvious that this is huge. This is way. And so there are some nice moments um, like that, but no, I, I agree. You could have, you could have done because there is so much, you know, put just on the dialogue you could have done some great things uh doing a little more blocking a little more staging moving around well and i am kind of curious because i was just thinking i mean we're all we're speaking in hypotheticals here but this movie was this was made in the real world and tom mccarthy just made the cobbler and now he's directing (laughs) all these other actors maybe it's just a situation of he i I would be curious what that set was like if he just said okay guys um we're going to shoot this scene i'm going to put the camera here you guys do your thing i'm kind of curious who was in charge there you know what I mean? You think you think the actors were well. I don't. Were taking... I, well, I, I don't. Well, no, I don't think that they were. That they were. I think it was more just a situation of him. He knew that he was not the quote biggest star on the on the set mm-hmm. per se. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like he knew he put the camera where he wanted it to get the shot. Got his got his coverage, but it was more about the actors doing their thing, and that may have I... had something to do with the fact that he's just made the cobbler. He's not at their level per se. I, I don't know if I agree with that. Like it doesn't, 
generally I can sniff out a film that feels like it's shot in coverage and, and cobbled together. You in, might say in post. <laughs> um, and maybe, maybe this is just the actors were really good at repeating things and, and getting sort of a routine in, but this feels like something that is meticulously planned out, but in a very, once again, subtle way. Um, just the way some of those interactions and, and intercutting, um, plays out. And some of the, uh, like I, I think of a scene like when, uh, Rachel McAdams meets with the victim at the coffee shop. Um, and then they end up walking through the park and the way that that, that's a, that's a great sort of moment of subtlety going from, okay, we're, we're meeting to, okay, let's get out in the open. And then it has this reveal of the church, just, you know, playground and church just off in the background. Um, that just gives you this, this sense that if you're not from Boston, it gives you, or, or not familiar with Boston, a sense of just how prevalent, uh, the church is within mm-hmm. the community. Like it seems it's sort of everywhere. There's, there's a church, you know, all around this city um, to run into. And so if you are, you know, like this guy, a victim, that can be sort of a, a daunting, and it, you know, there's just the subtlety to the way that, the, that he reveals that that's got to be planned. I oh, think. yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's planned. It, this this will sound more dismissive than I mean, but it actually kind of how I began. It's, it's a compliment. This feels like television. Mm-hmm. It feels like two and a half. It feels like really good television. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. Like, I totally agree because it's, it's not something that necessarily knocked my socks off when I first saw it. Like I really enjoyed it. Um, but it's, it's just really competently made. It's really fantastic storytelling. Like it reminds me of like, uh, watching this for the first time kind of reminded me of watching Zodiac for the first time. Zodiac is a incredibly well-made, um, just fantastically told story. But it's it's a little, particularly for David Fincher, it's um, a little under like under the radar, I guess. Um, it, it has that quality of it can it can ease by a little bit, but then it digs into your psyche. So you mentioned the second ago, it didn't knock your socks off the first time. Seeing it a second time, does this make its way into your top five? Top five of the uh, year? Of, of, yeah, of the year. Uh, probably not, but not, I mean, that's a personal thing. And when I say doesn't, didn't blow my socks off, like I enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. Um, but it's, it's a, I don't know. It, I think it would be interesting to ask me that again in like five years. Cause this is actually, I, I didn't want to revisit this movie as soon as I did. I knew it was the kind that, um, it, it just felt like after first viewing felt like the type of movie that is going to grow an appreciation for me. And so I, I would be curious if in five years there's something that, um, you know, kind of fades in my recollection, but this sticks. And so of the seven best picture nominees, bearing in mind, which ones are most likely to actually, you know, win, mm-hmm. are you cool with spotlight? I'm very cool. I mean, I, when spotlight won, I like, think I had an audible reaction and did a little fist fist pound because Michael Keaton style of saying, F- yeah, <laughs> something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, just uh, for one, like it beat the Revenant and it's a movie that I liked far, far more than the Revenant. Uh, but also it, it sort of felt like the, almost the biggest underdog because it like, it, it kept popping up in, you know, Oscar talk, but never felt like it quite had exactly the momentum um, so it, it felt good. I guess room was probably the bigger underdog in the, in that list, but, uh, no, I was, I was very happy with it. I think as far as Oscar, uh, you know, best picture, uh, winners go, it's, it's a pretty high up on the, like the right film for what was nominated one. Well, okay. Terrific. So whenever you see this for another time in five years, are you going to be drinking? And I didn't sneak a peek. I sneaked a peek. Okay, I snuck a peek, but I was going to say this anyway. Okay. Are you going to be drinking a Boston Lager? I mean, that's, yeah, Samuel Adams Boston, Log- Boston Lager from Boston Brewing Company is the, uh, it's the thing that I have to recommend. And here's, here's the thing. Uh, I think that beer kind of matches this pretty well. It's a, um, it's a beer that's sort of subtly great. Uh, it's one of the first beers that in college when I was of drinking age, of course, um, one of the first beers that I was like, oh yeah, beers, beers actually good. 
you know, first, one of the first things getting away from like Bud Light. Um, and it's, it's one of the, like, I look back on my choices at that time. It's one of the few that I drank then that I would still drink now. Um, that's actually, I would consider to still be a, a pretty, pretty good beer. Um, I, I don't know what the, uh, I don't, I don't know what the kids are drinking these days, but, uh, yeah, you can, you can go much worse than, than Sammy. And actually, ironically enough, last night I had an IPL, which I didn't even know a Sam Adams IPL Boston lager. I didn't even know there was such a thing. An Indian IP- pale, yeah. An Indian IP- pale lager. Yeah. I didn't even um, know there was, you know, such I thing. have had, I have had one of those, not, not from Sam Adams, but from some, uh, Oregon brewery, and it was not very good. See, I, I think we've addressed this on the show before. An IPA is a little much for Little Hunter, mm-hmm. but um, an IPL, it's just it's a, it's a few notches below that as far as intensity. So I really uh-huh. enjoyed it. So I'm going to piggyback and give a beer recommendation. Okay. You recommend the Boston Lager. I will recommend the Sam Adams IPL. Okay. Sounds good. Well, Spotlight is currently available on Blu-ray, DVD, and all major streaming rental platforms. So if you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around. We'll be back after the break to discuss the art of the ensemble in Smells Like Team Spirit. Stop me if you've heard this one before. There is no I in team. Stop. We've heard that one before. Of course you have. Because that poster is ubiquitous in middle school gymnasiums across both time and space. It's almost as cliche as that cat dangling on the branch that says Hain in there. Yet we are a people that don't really prize teamwork. We merely pay a lip service. We have always prized the individual. And not just us Americans. Ever since the ancient Greeks, drama has been centered around the individual he has been championed above all, the hero whose journey we follow, and whose decisions serve as either positive templates or dire warnings for us all. If I'm a rare type of story, and for that reason, ironically, a much more individual storytelling style, is the ensemble. Now, not ensemble in the way the Screen Actors Guild defines it, which is basically a synonym for best picture. No, I mean a true ensemble, defined as all the parts of a thing taken together, so that each part is considered only in relation to the whole. In other words, harmony. Today during Smells Like Team Spirit, Chris and I will form a dynamic duo and debate what makes a true ensemble and discuss some of the pillars in motion pictures. More than that, however, we'll discuss the value of the ensemble in drama, especially in our modern supposedly connected world, where people are paradoxically more than ever isolated within the cozy confines of their own views and opinions. So Chris... Why do you think the Western world has so prized the individual in drama from the ancients to modern America? Boy, Hunter, you uh, you sure do have a way of just posing. Um, <laughs> Getting much bigger than just yeah. yeah. Uh, I I don't know. It's uh, I don't have an answer. I'm going to throw this one back at you. All right, I would say that I think it's just it's it's almost goes without saying because you're watching something as an individual. You can't watch something. You can watch something with a group, but you can't experience it as a group per se. Mm-hmm. And so you are funneling your experience through someone else, whether it's that they're relatable or that they're engaging or they're scary or whatever. You are entering the drama through a, a singular character. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think an ensemble is so rare. Something like Spotlight, which as I said in the in the review, kind of made me reassess what an ensemble is in many ways. Because I've always defined ensemble as just a lot of actors of equal kind of standing and there's no, a, a whole bunch of interconnected stories in some ways. Mm, okay. This, however, it, it forces me to reassess because 
for instance, the king of the ensemble, Robert, the late Robert Altman, I would actually say that maybe he wasn't an ensemble filmmaker and stuff like Nashville and shortcuts. I mean, I think, I think it's a different kind of ensemble. Well, okay. So let's talk about that. Do you think that there's, there's room in the ensemble definition or do you think that they're separate? I, I think so for sure. I mean, because Altman pictures are whether or not it is, you know, this free flowing group or this every, everything is a piece of the whole um, situation like spotlight or more like, I, I mean, some of, some of what makes Altman great is it's almost these, these vignettes that he keeps revisiting these mm-hmm. little um, multiple stories coming together, um, which I think is a different thing, but still you need, you need all of those moving parts for his stories to work the way that they do. Well, then how about this? Do you think it's fair to say that we can distinguish between an ensemble cast, i.e. spotlight and an ensemble film, i.e. Nashville? Maybe. I mean, if you want to, if you want to get, Oh, you know, semantics I, you know I, do. <laughs> I, I know you do. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you can do that. I think there's, and I think there is a distinction between those two things that, that you're talking about. I mean, uh, of a modern ilk. Um, and I guess he's not really doing it much anymore, but PT Anderson, his first, you know, three or so, uh, heart eight boogie nights, Magnolia, those, those films were very Altman esque in their, their ensembles, but they were other than Heart Eight, which is more um, one character. It's it's a, almost a different form of ensemble where it's one character driving forward with all these other characters sort of intertwined, which it was which is a whole different thing. You know, there's uh, you have you still have your main character, your you know sort of vehicle for your audience, but then you have all these people that that character is running into that makes up the ensemble versus see like, having not seen hard eight. I, I can't comment specifically, but that doesn't, but you say, know that type I, of movie, right? Yeah. Well, and to that point, I'm not sure that's an ensemble. I would argue that that's, again, you've got the central character, you're following the central character and you've just got a whole bunch of things surrounding it. I, I think it depends. I think it depends on how much you build out those other characters. Well, you've got a list here that um, there's some that let, let these kind of straddle the line. So one that immediately jumped out at me is one because it's longer and I like the title is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh-huh. I would actually say that that's you're following the Gary Oldman character. But again, you've got surrounded by very vivid, a very vivid supporting cast. I see. I, I would I would definitely argue it's an ensemble, though, just in the you get like like Benedict Cumberbatch's character. If he was just sort of an ancillary secondary character for moving, um, you know, moving a little bit of plot forward in Gary Oldman's world, you wouldn't get the depth that you get out of out of that character. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I feel like we're, I, I feel like we can further define it. If you're, if you're going to get into defining multiple, well, let's add a C. Yeah. We've got the yeah. A and B definition, C definition. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really, I mean, you can, you can take your pick of like another one that I've got here. One, a film that I love to talk about brick, um, that probably falls into that same category of you've got your main character, but he's. Um, constantly sort of interacting with all these other characters and, and not just they get one scene, but he interacts with one, goes to another, goes to another, comes back to the first, goes to the third, goes to the second. And uh, it, it, these, this just cast of characters that uh, function as, you know, in, in the ecosystem of the story, they are all important to keeping it moving forward. And it's not just, um, it's not just held up by that Brendan character, the main character in Brick. Um, so I, I don't know. You're, you're yeah, giving me a very yeah. blank look. Yeah, you're not, I, I, you're not, I don't, yeah, I don't think you and I are going to see eye to eye on this because even though I love talking about this movie, I'll talk about this movie all day, but you have rock, the rock is an ensemble. And again, I think that that, I think that movie is about Nicholas Cage's character. He's the one you funnel through and then you've got strong supporting roles. Yeah, no, I, I would be it played by Sean Connery. So it's, I, I, I would, I would mostly agree with you. Like that ensemble is more like the, the, uh, Screen Actors Guild style of an ensemble, yeah. but it's a pretty good one, I think. <laughs> Best picture of 1996, <laughs> or should have been, is The Rock. Um, okay, so what about some bad ensembles? You've got some oh, interesting yeah. ones on the list so, that you enjoy talking about. So, um, okay, let me let me just throw uh, The Man in the Iron Mask. Does that qualify for you in your... your uh, you know, actually, of- it may. You know, yeah, I think it would because it, it, you know the the Jeremy Irons character and then the Musketeers are just as much the story as mm-hmm. the titular man in the Iron Mask. So yeah. yes, I would say that. And would they qualify. they they go they play off of each other. They go back and forth. They sort of intertwine by the end into 
into one larger story. And in in many ways, that's and if I guess that's how I would define an ensemble overall is do you follow just one is your entry point in the story one character or is it multiple characters? Mm-hmm. And so that's a situation wherever it's multiple. Okay, but we're we're missing a, a real opportunity here. Let's talk about why this is a bad or what is it a bad ensemble? Is it a is the ensemble better than the movie itself? It might what be a you... good no well no the ensemble is clearly better than the movie itself. <laughs> it's just they're deployed very terribly. <laughs> like it's and, and we've talked about this before. Like just the way that the way that all of this plays out makes no sense with everyone. The thing that always bugs me is like everyone's doing their own accent, whatever that is. Yeah. Be it John Malkovich doing a John Malkovich accent, Leonardo DiCaprio just being young Leo. You've got Gabriel Byrne. You've got uh, Gerard Depardieu. Like nobody, nobody's on the same page. But here. it is a true ensemble. Even if they're yeah, on different yeah. pages, it is a, an ensemble. Um, you there. Your next one you've got there is Batman and Robin. I'm curious the justification there. Did you just want to talk about Batman I, and Robin? <laughs> I mean, kind of. There's it's a I it's the particularly of like Batman movies. I think it's the biggest ensemble of. You have three bad guys. You've got three good guys in this one, um, plus Alfred and you know a couple ancillary. Like it's it's it it, it it more. This is like I feel like where an ensemble or an attempt at an ensemble can go really wrong, where it just feels bloated. Like it doesn't feel like any of it meshes together right it's just oh you know what we need bane and poison ivy and arnold schwarzenegger said he wants to do a batman movie let's throw him in as mr freeze yeah i think that was it and i even thought this is kid i think it was a situation wherever they just had crossed out all these other villains they saw who they had left and then thought how can we put them together and not be totally contrived but, but then what about what about introducing alfred's niece is it, her, is yeah, it his, niece? his niece in his this niece story as batgirl well the, yeah they, they still <laughs> hadn't done batgirl i mean they just how do we get all these elements in here and speaking of getting all these elements in here and speaking of the rock southland tales southland tales which a I different mean, rock yeah i think we've talked about this a little the southland tales is sort of a so this is also on the bad i love that we're spending a lot of time on the bad side of things um this is a really pretty terrible like it's it's a movie that's very ambitious but does not fall like nothing falls as it's intended to but sort of in a beautiful way it's one of those things that if it weren't so dull i would say it's essential viewing just because of how bad insane it is uh-huh. But I mean, I mean, it's, I, I'll it leave is, it to you, viewer. Viewer discretion advised. If you feel like spending two and a half hours, but for batch insanity, it's up to you. But you've got to admit, like there is ambition there. It's misguided ambition, but it's it's ambition. Yeah, and, sure. And what makes this an ensemble is there is a. I mean, I don't even know, like Sherry O'Terry, Will Sasso, The Rock, um, Sean William Scott. That's his name, right? That's his name. Yeah. Um, uh, Justin Timberlake. Sarah shows Michelle up. Geller. Sarah Michelle Geller. Like there, there are, a, and we're. I mean, uh, uh, Wallace Shawn shows up for for a hot minute. Kevin Smith is in this movie. There are there are so many people as um, as characters that just uh this and, and this is kind of along the same lines as batman and robin where it's just it's so bloated and trying to um trying to do too much but in a different in a different way like you know talking about manly iron mask where at least things kind of come together to mesh like this attempts to do that but there are so many loose ends everywhere with these little bitty vignette stories that um just a lot of them have no point other than uh, it feels like Richard Kelly, the writer director here, the guy that did Donnie Darko. Um, no one was telling him no. You know, he he was everything that came through his mind. He was like, yeah, and now I'm going to put that on the page and that. And, and that. where is he now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where is he now because of that? So we talked. spent quite a bit of time on crappy ensembles. Let's talk about some good ones. This wasn't on your list. It's actually one of my favorite movies. And I think, you know, a true ensemble in every sense of the word is Seven Samurai. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Dead, yeah, definitely. Um, you, you, you want to lead this? You one know, off? honestly, th- this is why we talk more about the bads because there's not anything to talk about. It's Seven Samurai. It's really good. It, it's it's uh, it's three and a half hours long, or excuse me, about three and a half th- hours long. Goes by like a breeze. You've got a few main samurai characters who you've, who you've you got fun- to share them a few. Yeah, exactly. And Takashi Shimura, who you funnel the. That's who. You, those are your connections. But there's also the young samurai, and then some of the ancillary samurai are also your entry point of the story mm-hmm. so it would qualify as an ensemble yeah and I, I think there's something interesting in in that a characteristic that's i think probably in some of these others that we've talked about as well but we haven't really touched on where each character functions as almost a entry point for a different you know type segment yeah of, yeah so instead of your main character being bobby anyone who 
is sort of a blank page, you give them a little more depth and then it's, it's almost a choose your own adventure story where you're like, which, which one do you relate Who's to? Who's going to be your, yeah. yeah your are choice. you, a, are you a Samantha or are you a, what's another? <laughs> is that uh, a sex in the city? It's a sex in the city reference, but I don't know. <laughs> Carrie? Any other. Is yeah. it Carrie? Are I, you I, a Samantha? Okay. Right. Should, yeah, my, but, my, my, my wife is not, not paying attention, so I can't get I was a confirmation about to say, on that. That, that finally piqued her interest. <laughs> um, have you ever seen the Magnificent Seven, the remake? I have not. All right, that actually connects the Tashir Mifune character and then the Yun Samurai character. They actually blend those two characters together. Interesting, okay. Yeah, it's actually, it's a, it's a good movie, and it's a, it's a great movie, but it's not as good as Seven Samurai. It's, it's kind of belied yeah. by its its parentage, as mm-hmm. it were. That's neither here nor there. What is your favorite ensemble picture on your list? Um, Probably, I mean, th- and this, this will get into a category that we haven't even talked about, which I think is a whole nother subcategory. I, I would honestly say probably the Grand Budapest Hotel. And I was actually just talking with a guy at work uh, recently, uh, a one Alan Miller. Um, who, who you may be familiar with. And he was, he was like, ah, oh, what's that, that Budapest movie? It's just, there's a whole bunch of people, but there's, there's never a main character. I don't know who, who I'm supposed to follow or root for. And so when you brought this up as, as a topic, I was like, oh yeah, of course. Like Wes Anderson does it all the time. We'll give a shout out to Alan Miller here. However, again, I'm, I'm going to have to disagree here. Cause I would say that the Grand Budapest Hotel, it's the Ray Fiennes character who that's the main character. Whereas you've got Royal Tannenbaum's there. I would say Royal Tannenbaum's true ensemble. Whereas Life Aquatic and uh, Life Aquatic and Grand Budapest, and then you're you're like suddenly becoming an ensemble purist of some kind. Well, but I mean, like I said, Spotlight. It, it really, honestly, it shined a spotlight. It, it opened my eyes because there wasn't a main character to follow through, and so that's that's kind of how I, think, I see ensembles. But I, I think that's I, I I do think that is a quality of a particular kind of ensemble, though. Like, see, I, I feel think, like that's just I a big think, cast. I think Grand Budapest, but what is a big cast? It is an ensemble. Okay, well, well then, okay, then it's bad. Batman Begins an ensemble then? Hmm, that's an interesting... I I would say no, because those characters don't get as much, like, development. Um, you know, there's, there's really still only Bruce Wayne and Alfred, and I guess maybe Commissioner Gordon. Like, it's not... There's a big cast, but it's... Uh, they just pop up when they're necessary. Um, whereas, like, something like Grand Budapest Hotel, like... There, there are a ton of characters, but most of those characters have more depth to them than just a, uh, like a Falcone. That character isn't very, he's fairly two dimensional. He serves the purpose of the, of the film in Batman Begins, but he's to, to what end it's, it's giving Batman a catalyst for being Batman. Um, whereas in, in Grand Budapest Hotel, you have a, uh, like, and, and I don't even know, like if Ray finds is who I would necessarily consider to be, uh, actually good main, point. I would figure. say it's the, I would say that the actual protagonist in the story is the, is the young man. I mean, there's, there's zero that the young man, um, played by Tony Revolori and then also played by F Murray Abraham when he gets older, you, you've also got, uh, Jude law and I forget, uh, who's playing him when he's older, you know, you Falcone actually, it's, <laughs> it's actually Falcone, Tom Wilkinson, um, six and, degrees of Tom Wilkinson. And, and so like you could, you could argue because it's his story. It's his, he's the narrator. He's sort of a main character and it. Like I, there, there are several, you know, main characters to, to attach to depending on, on your flavor. And then I do think there are additional characters that aren't that strong as far as, you could argue that their main character, but they flesh it out more than just a big cast necessarily does. Uh, be it Jeff Goldblum or Saoirse Ronan or as Agatha or, you know, several, several of those sort of characters that pop up um, again and again throughout it. Then let's let's define our ensemble. There's definition one because we'll we'll write our in our war starts at midnight dictionary. Definition one is no single character to follow through. Definition two. Yeah, let's be, let's call that let's call that prime pure, ensemble. Yes, yes, prime ensemble. <laughs> to, to, um, to, to call call back to a mammoth. Definition two would be your Pulp Fiction, your Robert Altman of a bunch of interconnected stories, mm-hmm. and then definition three would be. The Gallagher definition. I'm gonna let you do. <laughs> oh, how would you define? I mean, I I think it's a it's it's almost a bit of a subset of definition B a little bit, but um, there's one main story, maybe one main character, maybe a couple, but it's not quite as because I think the Altman thing there's there's something to like the vignette nature of some of that. 
um, where, which you don't necessarily get in something like mash, um, or, or a couple of, but something like, you know, like Nashville, like shortcuts, there's, um, like the player, I think I've only seen, seen bits of that, but I, I think that one also falls into, uh, your jumping around and, um, you know, you have, you have this, you have a story, B story, C story, D story going on. I, I guess the Gallagher one would be a little different in that it's, um, you have one main story per se, but you have characters that are perhaps richer than, you know, you, you have a, a large cast of characters and then characters that are richer than you would typically get in just, you know, throwing, throwing them in to be characters who the main character. Well, and, may, and maybe not just richer characters. They're more consequential to the progression of the plot. Mm-hmm. They're not. Yeah. They're, they're a little more, maybe two and a half dimensional, at least if not three dimensional. Um, and they, they feel like characters, not like plot devices, not like just an archetype of, Oh, that's the bad guy. Oh, that's the helpful, whatever. Oh, the, the, yeah. the helpful, whatever the, she's, you know, elf or <laughs> prostitute with a heart of gold or, you know, whatever it happens to be. If, yeah. If there could be a movie with the helpful elf and the helpful prostitute of gold, that would be a new <laughs> Wait, ensemble. She's, she's made of gold. I, I say her, she has a heart of gold. Oh but. yeah. The, ho- the, ho- the, yeah, the whore of gold. Um, okay. So we have ensemble prime and we have ensemble, let's call it Neo. Ensemble okay. Neo. Um, so that's what Chris and I have. We want to hear what, how do you define an ensemble? And then what are some of your favorite pictures in your definition? Please let us know at hello or starts at midnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. I can tell you all along, even when you're with me. It's recommendation time again. Um, what what sort of obscure uh, prime ensemble? Yes, will it be an ensemble prime or an ensemble neo, neo or somewhere in between? Actually, I would say that this would qualify as probably an ensemble neo. Okay, it is a ensemble. It is a newspaper movie, and it stars Michael Keaton. And it's not Spotlight. It's from 1994, directed by Ron Howard. It's called The Paper. And it's got an ensemble cast in the according to the neo definition, but the the main character is is Michael Keaton. You follow him as as an editor at this newspaper, and the cast surrounding him includes Marissa Tomei, Glenn Close, Randy Quaid, pre crazy Randy Quaid, or depending. I mean, I mean this this whole cast just screams mid nineties. Yeah, and then uh, and then and Robert Duvall. So Christian Slater's not slated if, in there somewhere. If he, if he is, it's one of the things he's below the title. Okay. But anyway, no, it's, it's a, it's a really spectacular movie. And whereas spotlight was a drama, this is a, a, a drama ensemble about a newspaper. This is a comedy ensemble about a newspaper. So um, it's one of those things. It's, it's one of those $5 bin Walmart DVD kind of movies at mm-hmm. this point, which is depressing or a TBS movie. So I'm not sure where to find it, but if you can seek it out, it's definitely worth it. All right. Uh, my recommendation this time is it's not a firm recommendation. It's sort of like sometimes you've recommended movies where you're like, well, this is intriguing. So it's a squishy, it's, would you say it's a squishy it's, recommendation? It's a Neo recommendation. <laughs> um, and, but watching spotlight, uh, again, reminded me how much I loved, uh, Leah Shriver in, uh, in this film, which is, I, I think it got a lot of, a lot more, um, I don't know, criticism than maybe it necessarily deserves. It's not a great film, but, uh, Pawn Sacrifice, the Bobby Fisher movie from like last fall, uh, starring Tobey Maguire as, uh, as Bobby Fisher, Leah Shriver plays Boris Spassky, who is his, um, you know, Soviet opponent, um, who he famously, uh, 
you know, played some chess against. And yeah, anything other than chess, I'm pretty sure Leo Schreier would just mop the floor with Tobey <laughs> Maguire. So, but, thank you for but he kind of like, I mean, that's that's the thing is he is the coolest guy in the world in this movie, um, and that's that's why I'm recommending it. Really, like just just Google uh, Leo Shriver. Uh, pawn sacrifice and find like the pictures of him in his like Ray-Ban sunglasses. Coolest dude in the room always. And his, you know, just the, the way that he does his little Russian accent and everything. Uh, it's worth it for his performance. Not a terrible movie there. Honestly, I think the opening like 15 minutes is really solid. And I was almost, I was taken aback by how um, competent the, the filmmaking was. And then that begins to fall away uh, when, Honestly, when a lot of it begins to be put on the shoulders of Tobey Maguire, he gets he gets a little itchy on screen, mm-hmm. um, but still worth still worth checking out. I think it's you know available to rent and such now. Uh, so that's Pawn Sacrifice. And, you know, might as well just make it a Leo Schreiber afternoon and after Spotlight and Pawn Sacrifice, uh, Wolverine X or X-Men Origins Wolverine. <laughs> why not? Yeah, why not? Why just not? The, the how far a single human being can fall <laughs> just trying to make a living. His, 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 the ensemble of his range. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes, weekly movie recommendations, and more. You can say hi to Hunter on Facebook or me on Twitter at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far in the credits, let's face it, you should probably subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you rate us or leave us a nice little review? It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll make you feel awesome. On the contrary, if you're just the trolling type who's been hate listening through these entire credits, please, please tell us everything we got wrong at hello midnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist, just leave us a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. Shout out to Generationals for music on this week's show. Find more at generationals.com. And join us in another fortnight as we discuss our mutual war crime, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, with our Bayou-based bureau correspondent, Jacob Graves. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next time.